one of the scientists who pioneered research on the Shroud of Turin in the 1970s, apparently an, an unbeliever. At one point during his research, he decided to sit alone before the Shroud to see if it would have any effect on him. So one evening when the other researchers had left, he pulled up a chair and sat in front of the shroud. And he asked himself, okay, what do you feel? He said that he didn't have a religious experience, quote unquote, but that one thing struck him. The body of the man on the shroud has sustained an incredible amount of trauma. He has been beaten and lacerated so severely, but the face is so serene. The two, he said, the two just don't go together. Trying to make sorrow and glory go together, trying to make sense of it all. This is not only the constant theme of the Triduum and certainly of the Easter octave, but also of our Christian lives. Weren't the apostles themselves often perplexed by the Lord who sometimes would exercise miraculous powers and astound everyone, but then he would permit them to struggle and to be drowned, almost drowned at sea. Weren't they confused at how the glory of the transfiguration could be followed up so quickly by a conversation about his upcoming humiliation and passion? Or the Lord in handcuffs, in the garden, brutalized, compared to his power to call down 12 legions of angels. Do both sides of the equation go together? God's ways versus man's ways. The power of God and the fear of man. God's timing versus man's schedule. God's justice and our concept of justice. Man's struggle over the oars or under the sun's heat versus a full paycheck at the end of the day for those who worked only an hour. What is that? It doesn't seem to go together. And what about those several nets overflowing with fish for those who had just pushed off from the shore at midday? A party thrown for the irresponsible prodigal son. Over and over again, the two just don't seem to go together. When I went on pilgrimage to the Holy Land about a year and a half ago, our last full day there was a Saturday in Jerusalem. And very early that morning, I had the privilege to celebrate Mass in the edicule of the Holy Sepulchre, 20-minute Mass. And you know why. 
after our, our pilgrimage group had finished visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I wanted to go back later in the day because everything had happened so quickly. And I also wanted to explore the Armenian quarter of the old city, meet the Armenian Catholic patriarch, visit the Cathedral of St. James. Lots of big plans for the day. And we had about two hours of free time on Saturday afternoon. But we had also scheduled during that very same time adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and confession for the pilgrims. So as I was hearing confessions and the clock was ticking, I began to see that going back into the old city wasn't going to be possible. Revisiting Calvary, the anointing stone, peeking into the edicule, it wasn't going to happen. And I, at first I kept thinking, well, somehow it'll work out, somehow, and it didn't. And I was at first a little disappointed. But then I heard the word of God directed straight at me. Son of man. Everything that happened to the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, his passion, his death, his resurrection, all of that was for the sake of what a priest does in the confessional. Reconciling sinners to the Father. Anius redemit oves, Christus sinocens patri reconciliavit peccatores. Everything that happened over there, just a few hundred feet away from where I was, was for the sake of what I was doing here in this confessional. And had I excused myself to go and see what I wanted to see, I would not have been acting on the word of God, but maybe more like a Pharisee, completely missing the point of what God did 2,000 years ago. The Lord could have arranged it otherwise, but his time and my desires did not fit together. And yet somehow everything was as it should have been. Does not the Lord say during his passion, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Or, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And are not the apostles now on this Friday afternoon trying to make everything make sense, make everything fit together? Those after whom the apostolic life gets his name, gets its name, are they not trying to make sense of their three-year commitment to this extraordinary man, this man who, whose body absorbed so much trauma and yet with such peace, the man whom they could never quite figure out why he would do one thing in one place and refrain from doing it in another place, why he would say this here and not there. And whether they promise to follow him wholeheartedly or half-heartedly, are they not reevaluating, after all, what a promise means, what it means to follow? They're trying to make sense of their eagerness to be so close to him, to reign with him on thrones, 
to be the greatest among themselves. And now they're pushing all of that away. Like the disciples going to Emmaus, they're disappointed, they're depressed, and maybe a little bit ashamed. Any vocation must confront that moment. How does my younger self, my younger enthusiasm, square with who I am today? Have I gone from confidence and hope to practical despair, to cynicism? Have I gone from an intentional pursuit of that holiness without which we shall not see God to a casual attitude of no worries, no worries, I'll be saved. The apostles went from being men who couldn't get close enough to Jesus and brag about it to men who couldn't get away from him fast enough or far enough. To all in earshot, Peter called down curses upon himself. May God damn me if I know him. And the apostles as a whole wanted to hide and be forgotten. Let the mountains fall upon us, was their prayer. Tomorrow evening, the resolution will come. The mending of relationships will begin. And unimaginable joy will be reborn. But for now, nothing fits. Everything looks like a colossal disaster. Trying to make infidelity and fear and betrayal, trying to make all of that fit with who I had professed to be, who I actually am, and who Jesus is. It doesn't always seem to fit together. The Lord calls for perfection, but am I perfect as he expects me to be perfect? Pope Francis said in an address to religious earlier this year, that when we look back on our lives, our religious lives, on our zeal to be close to the Lord, on our promises, that the evil one is there to remind us of our failures as religious. Quote, in all these years, you haven't got any better. You haven't achieved what you could have. They haven't let you do what you were meant to do. You haven't always been faithful. You aren't capable, and so on. If we follow this line of thinking, we will end up destroying ourselves like Judas. And the Holy Father says, we risk losing our bearings, the gratuitous love of God. That's our anchor. When we keep our gaze fixed upon him, when we open ourselves to his forgiveness, that renews us, and we are reassured of his faithfulness. We can ask ourselves, the Holy Father concludes, to whom do I turn my gaze, to the Lord or to myself? Once again, we are back at that serene face, 
that's so absorbed so much trauma and that so impressed an honest scientist non-believer. So badly mistreated, so sinned against, so offended, and so much at peace. Where does my gaze go on Good Friday? Where do I look every other day of the year? Is there some bond that makes everything fit together? There will never be a proportion between God's love for us and our merit. On Good Friday, the flesh of Christ terrifies us. But that face tells me a story of love and mercy and peace. And with these, he comforts and assures us there is no equality, there is no equation, and there doesn't need to be. The Lord's union with his people is seldom spoken of in Scripture as a perfect match. That comes at the end of the apocalypse. (laughs) But rather, it is the eternal bridegroom faithful to the unfaithful harlot bride. Faithful to the one who in Ezekiel took her eyes off of God and put them onto herself. And yet, the Lord says, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant, and you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord. What that scientist saw in the face of Christ was real peace. He was correct. But what makes it go together with that broken body is what you cannot see unless you know the Lord. Unless you have walked many miles, many years with the Lord, you won't see how the equation works. The Lord had told his disciples at the Last Supper, you will never see a greater love than the love that lays down its life for its friends. And so many people saw him dying. Many stood by, and many saw that man staggering under his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Many more saw him hanging on the cross because it was just outside of the city where many people passed by, and most people didn't care. Most people were unimpressed. Most people looked away. Or some made sarcastic jibes. And very few, maybe only that handful who stood by the cross, knew what had brought that man to that point and what was keeping him there. It was the greatest love that could ever be. What unites the serene face on the tortured body is an inconceivable love. Love unites what doesn't go together, humanly speaking. Men who live in community like the apostles, like us, and who sometimes don't seem to fit together. Yet we make it on our way to God through love.
Now, these are just words until we see what happens today. It is terrible to think about, but in order for me to tap into that love, to, for me to love God and to love my brothers as I should, I really do need to see the awful spectacle of the innocent Lamb of God covered with blood. Nothing else will touch my heart. That's what's in the mind of God. These people will not be moved unless they see that. Before I can believe in a love that is strong enough to bring peace in the face of suffering, I have to see it in the flesh. And what does that say about me? I shudder to think of what it says about me. That I need to see the Son of God broken, bleeding, crushed to the earth in order to get it through my hard head and through my even harder heart that God is love and I'm not and there doesn't need to be a proportion. Before we can undergo any kind of meaningful change in our life, that conversion of ways that we speak about, we have to be convinced of that inconceivable love that you don't know until you taste it. You can look at the crucifix, you can look at the Shroud of Turin and make very wise observations, but until you taste it, until you feel it, you don't know it. All of us at some point have been loved badly by others, and we ourselves have loved others badly. Too attached, too needy, too detached, too cold, too much self-interest, too much of this, too little of that. And what we really need is the assurance that we are loved freely and heroically by someone who gets nothing out of it, where there is no quid pro quo. Someone who has nothing to gain, someone who will love us even if we were to spit in his face, and that is Jesus. That is love that doesn't go away, a love that never dies. St. Ignatius of Antioch says, I desire for my drink the blood of Christ that is incorruptible love. Incorruptible love. That experience of being loved freely as you are by someone who knows the full truth about you and yet continues to give you gifts, continues to pour out the good measure over you until it overflows in an embarrassing way. That should absolutely melt us, flatten us to the earth in humility and gratitude. The experience of being called friend by someone whom we, ha- we may have betrayed or ignored many times over. The experience of being called beloved by one to whom we may have been cold and uncaring. This is supposed to move our hearts to change. And nothing short of it will do the job. Surely, surely, says Isaiah, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And yet he kept going. He kept walking. He kept moving to the cross. 
Could it be that the same God who made himself so unsightly to humanize is drawing us to himself by showing us something we may not be prepared to see and which only he gives to those who are ready to see it. In his passion, he could say, this is your ugliness on me. This is your crime on me. Your filth, your anger, your lust, your covetousness, your ambition. And I smeared myself with it. And then I let myself be dragged through the crowded streets of Jerusalem while everyone pointed and shouted that I was the guilty one. And I said nothing to the contrary. Do you still not understand? That's what makes the face go with the body. And that's what we need to see before we will even take the first step in following Jesus and take the last step in following Jesus. This is what the Lord shows us on Good Friday. And we look at our religious life in that light of the Son of Man broken, the Son of Man pushing on, even though he is ignored, even though he is despised. Returning finally for a moment to that traumatized body and the serene face. Many of us are probably familiar with trauma recovery programs that are Catholic in inspiration. And one has an exercise where at the beginning, the participant draws a freehand picture of themselves and then they scrawl over the picture all of the bad words, the comments, the judgments that others have made about them or that they have told themselves because of their trauma. Stupid, cheap, useless, fat, ugly, and many other stronger words. In the end, on Sunday morning, the participants redo the exercise after transformation has happened. And they draw another picture of themselves with words that Jesus has taught them. Beloved, forgiven, redeemed, alive. Or even, I have longed to eat this Passover with you. You are my friend. The beauty of your personhood restored, dignity restored, restored by the only one who loves you that much. Now all of the pieces fit together. Now the things that didn't seem to go together make sense in an unimaginable way in Christ. Think back on your life and consider those words that the evil one might have scratched into your skin, might have written all over you, the ugly words, the lies, 
and think today what the Lord has taught you, the words of love that he has spoken to you, the words of healing that he has scrawled in big, bold letters all over your life. These are the bonds that draw all things together. If I be lifted up, I'll make everything make sense in the end. If I be lifted up, I will show you the connection between suffering, trauma, sorrow, disgrace, and glory. Because I, when I am lifted up, will draw all things, including you, my friend, to myself.